Welcome to the GTI Tours Podcast. Join us as we go behind the scenes and discuss with trip leaders, guides, biblical scholars, and more to bring the land and the lessons of the Bible to life. Hello and welcome to the GTI Tours Podcast. My name is Rich and I will be your host today. And I'm excited as we dive into bringing the land and the lessons of the Bible to life. And we've been doing this uh, kind of these segments of trying to bring some great resources, bring some great people together. And today I get a chance to talk with somebody who's been um, in my life for quite some time. I've gotten to know him over the years. I've read a lot of his books, sat under his teaching, and had a chance to travel with him as well. So Dr. Mark Strauss is going to be here with us on this podcast today. And kind of a family background for me, like the church I grew up in, in in San Diego area, Escondido, California. His dad was our pastor for years. And then as I ran the Joshua Wilderness Institute, I got a chance to work with Mark every single year as he came up and he taught our students. And so I'm excited for you to get to know him. And I'm excited for what is going to come out in this podcast. And hopefully it's going to drive you to dig deeper into God's word, get to know him better and put it into practice. So Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rich. It's great to be with you again. Now, Mark, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are, a little bit of background on where you teach, what you've been up to, and then we'll kind of jump into this. Sure. Um, My title is University Professor of New Testament at Bethel Seminary. Bethel Seminary is located in St. Paul, Minnesota. They had multiple campuses. Um, I've been in San Diego, based in San Diego, my whole career with Bethel, and now I teach online fully online uh, for them. have been there for uh, since 1993. So I'm coming up to almost 30 years at this point and um, have loved being there, uh, love to teach, love to mentor students. Uh, my areas of primary writing and research have been in gospels um, and in especially Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, in some commentaries on those. The other area I've of, of passion for me has been Bible translation. I I serve on the NIV committee, the New International Version Committee on Bible Translation. I'm the vice chair of that committee. I've been on that for about 10 years and have been interested in translation and linguistics, um, um, those aspects of biblical interpretation, and especially hermeneutics, how to read the Bible. I've written and, and worked quite a lot in that area, how we read and especially apply the Bible in our rapidly changing cultural context. So that's a quick summary <laughs> overall. You're published a lot. Like how many how many books would you say these days? I remember in seminary reading your stuff. So I'm sure people listening maybe have heard your name. I think it just reached 20. I'm not sure exactly though, because some things are co-written and so forth. But yeah. A little fun story for me. And just so people kind of get a little bit more of a a taste and, and color flavor of of Dr. Mark Strauss is that is that I've gotten the chance to travel to a lot of places and there was a time where I had yet to go to Turkey. And so I I had this dream and I told my wife, I said, my dream is to go to Turkey and my dream is to go there with always with somebody who's going to be able to teach me and I can learn from them. And so I had this crazy idea and it was, let's go to Turkey. And of course I want to, I want to get Dr. Mark Strauss there, New Testament professor. But I said, how cool would it be if I grabbed an old Testament professor to be the catalyst on this trip to just bring up arguments. And, and we would just have a great time, like of just kind of like debating things back and forth. And so we I grabbed another great friend, uh, 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 Dr. Sam Meyer and, and Mark and Sam know each other well. 
and we just, it was the best trip I've ever been on because it was the three of us plus Tom Harrington from GTI tours. And we just wandered around Turkey, checking things out. I call it geeking out, just geeking out <laughs> the entire time. And, and just allowing these two guys to, it, we, I, again, every day I went home with my, like, just, just full. I was full of, with notes and, and my journal and the whole thing. And, and I remember, I don't know if you remember this one time, Mark, I think we were in Miletus. Mm-hmm. was where That's it was right. at. And all of a sudden we come across this like writing that was in some ancient, I think it was ancient Greek of some sort. Uh-huh. It was an inscription um, in Greek. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so there you and Sam were deciphering it. I remember our guide's mind was blown. It was just blown. <laughs> yeah. He had no clue. And you guys are just there working your way through the script. Yeah, we were feeding off great. each other. We were feeding off each other. Yeah. I'd get stuck, then he'd go, he'd pick something up, and then he'd get stuck, and I'd pick something up, and we worked through that whole text. Well, that that was, I mean, that was a for me, that was probably the highlight of, of all of my trips as well. So I we that was a blast for us to be together on that trip. Yeah, a lot of fun. And then you and I got to travel again through Turkey another time on a trip that that you taught and it was again, it was great fun for me. It was such a learning moment uh, as I was yeah, spent all this time learning the New Testament, but a chance to walk through it and into being a place like Turkey and and through um, those those areas and see the Bible come alive. It, it was just amazing. So why don't we step into some of the topic that we're looking at? We were, we were talking you and I about this idea of more than history, the Gospels and Acts as a narrative theology. You know, let's break that down a little bit. Yeah, yeah, because um, we're talking, you know, about about geography as theology, and and so I thought to give a little background to that, you really have to understand how the Bible, particularly the Gospels, have been read over history. If you think about the earliest church, when they read the Gospels, they primarily focused on the Gospels as just data about the historical Jesus, and so here are documents that tell us about, and they want to know about Jesus, of course. So when they read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they had a, had a tendency to, to bring them together and just draw stories from Jesus. What that meant for Mark's gospel, which is the one I've done the most writing on, was it was mostly neglected because 90% of the stories in Mark appear in Matthew and Luke. And so if, it, if it's simply a summary and epitomize, ep, epitome of Matthew's gospel, why do you need it? There wasn't a single commentary written on Mark's gospel till the fourth century. So it was the neglected gospel. Um, and the other thing that the early church tended to do is to harmonize the Gospels into a single story. There's a, there, there's a famous uh, document by a guy named Tatian in the second century called the Diatessaron, which he, what Tatian did is he took the four Gospels and he cut and pasted them into a single Gospel, basically, how it really happened, in other words. Now, for some of us, that sounds great. But in fact, what you're doing is you're taking four spirit-inspired masterpieces and you're cutting and pasting them together into a story that isn't inspired by the Holy Spirit because it's not what the Spirit gave to these four individual writers. So the early church tended to treat the Gospels as history, but not as theology. Then jump ahead hundreds and hundreds of years to the period of the Enlightenment, the beginning of critical biblical scholarship, when basically the the Bible began to be scrutinized as a historical document, not as the Word of God. And at that time, they began to look at the Bible as fallible, as historical, as the work of human beings. And they came to view it more as theological, or we could even say as propaganda, theological propaganda, promoting the beliefs of the church. 
Um, and so you've got it either the, the early church looking at it as history or liberals looking at it as theology or, or propaganda. But in fact, the Gospels are both historical and theological. There's no contradiction between these, these two. And so we want to we read the, the Gospels as history. Certainly, these things took place. When Jesus went to a particular geographical spot, that's a historical event. But those geographical spots also have theological significance for the gospel writers. And so reading the gospels as narrative theology is sort of the term we use. It's, it's theology couched as story. It's historical biography, basically, but it's got theological significance. Well, then can you give us some examples of theological geography in the gospels? Sure, you bet. And we see it a lot. We even talk about it a lot. We maybe just don't think of it under that terminology. Uh, Think of Samaria, for example, right? You've got Galilee in the north, which is predominantly Jewish. You've got Judea in the south, which is predominantly Jewish. But then you've got Samaria in between, um, where the Samaritans live. And we know who the Samaritans are. From the Jewish perspective, the Samaritans are basically a half-breed race, a mix of colonists who were brought in during the Assyrian conquest and Jews or Israelites, we should say, Israelites who were more or less apostate. And so the Jews viewed them as as heretics. The Samaritans viewed themselves as the true people of God, the true Israel that had remained in the land and remained faithful to to the Lord throughout these times. So you've got this hatred between the two. Um, And in the gospel, Samaria is a historical place. Of course, in John 4, Jesus passes through Samaria and meets the Samaritan woman at the well. But Samaria carries theological significance as well, because Samaria are the outsiders, the outcasts, the hated, the other, if you will. And so we know this account of the, the story of the Samaritan woman, how significant it is that here is a woman who is a Samaritan, who's also, you know, have a, has a bad reputation because of her multiple marriages and so forth. And Jesus crosses that boundary and talks to her and shares the good news with her. And so Samaritans represent theologically, not only historically are they a people, but they represent something theologically as well as the outsider. And then in Luke, you know, you've got the parable of the, of the, of the, the good Samaritan in Luke mm-hmm. chapter 10, of course, the same thing where we know what a Samaritan symbolizes. Um, it's true, you know, this is a parable that Jesus told historically, but it's also got theological significance in terms of who the Samaritans were. So there's theological geography with reference to the Samaritans. Yeah, and I think that there's so many times that we, you know, we're reading the text and we 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 miss that, you know, like especially in the Good Samaritan story, it's like Jesus takes a story that is somewhat plausible. You know, people sure. walk down this road all the time. Um, they do these things all the time, but then he, he puts a Samaritan on the road who shouldn't be there. And then the Samaritan goes to a Jewish, to a Jewish city of Jared. Like, it's just crazy. It's like you, you take all that together and go, you know, who's going to believe this guy if this really happens showing up, you know, how do we know he didn't beat the person up? How do we <laughs> know that he's, you know, not the the culprit here of, of, of the problem. And so, you know, how many times have we read that story and just went, oh, Samaritan, when the Samaritan's like there for like, Jesus is doing a big thing there by throwing that that name right into the mix. Absolutely. All kinds of theology there. And it's not just geographical locations, place names. It's also geographical features like mountains, for example. Uh, Jesus goes up on the mountain and gives his sermon on the mount. Well, 
that's enormously significant because Jesus is giving his inaugural kingdom address, establishing the new covenant on the mountain. Well, who was on the mountain in the Old Testament? It was, you know, Moses on Mount Sinai. So there's mm-hmm. clear parallels between Mount Sinai and the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is portrayed theologically as a new Moses figure. Then, of course, he goes up to the mountain for the transfiguration. Um, he gives his um, discourse on the Mount of Olives, end times discourse. The um, Great Commission is given on a mountain. These are all mountaintop revelations. So mountains carry not only geographical, historical significance, but also theological significance. This is this is where it gets fun, right? Like everything we read, like I'd say with Israel, location, 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 as my uncle who's in real estate always says, like <laughs> it matters. Like it matters where something happens. Like I, mm. I was just thinking the other day about the fact that the Jewish people, the Israelites, they cross into Israel across the Jordan River at a specific location. And it's really interesting that John the Baptist is right mm. back there in that same space. Like yeah baptizing people. It's like, it's like you have these storylines that continue to intersect each other in these spots that hold significance. Absolutely. And the, the, the word eremos, the, the word for desert is when Jesus feeds the 5,000, he does it in a desert or a deserted place, or, you know, the translations often say something like an isolated place. But in fact, that's meant to recall the wilderness generation, you know, God feeding manna to the Israelites in the wilderness and Jesus, you know, multiplies the loaves and the fishes in the wilderness. Once again, you've got all kinds of new Moses imagery going on there with reference to a geographical setting. This is, I think, the fun nuance of of reading the text is that is that it's not some little thing that just happens. It's like this grand architectural like design of God coming into humanity with Christ and everything like it, it's all connected in such a yeah. way that that we begin to see like especially as Jesus is talking to the people of his time he's you know people ask this question why doesn't Jesus um, proclaim to be God I'm like well he does hmm. a lot um, he just does it in a, in a way that was Jewish and and in a way like you're saying like that was taking advantage of the places he was at because hmm. those are significant spots that represented something more than just the name of location, you know, yeah, that, that yeah. we might think of today. So, yeah. And that, that point yeah, you just you, made about Jesus' deity, one place you see that is on the Sea of Galilee. You've got, um, the, the, whenever the disciples take a boat trip, they blow it and they, they, they demonstrate <laughs> lack of faith. You keep saying, don't get in the boat, you know, because three times in Mark's gospel, whenever they get in the boat, they demonstrate a lack of faith. And what happens in the boat? Jesus demonstrates his his deity, you know, the storm at sea, um, and he speaks and calms the storm. Only Yahweh controls the weather in the Old Testament, right? Then he walks on the water uh, in, the, in the, the next boat boat scene. He walks on the water and it is Yahweh who treads through the sea, you know? So you've got this, this great imagery func- focusing on the geography, um, both for the disciples who fail on the sea. It's a place of, of confusion. It's a place of fear and danger. For Jesus, it's a place of mastery and power and control because he created the sea. Yeah. It's, you know, and this is why I think it's, it's, it's a brilliant thing when you get a chance to stand in a place like the Galilee or being Israel mm. is these things you're talking about really come to life as, as you're experiencing them in the moment, as you're s- sitting in the place where it happened to go, why did Jesus come here? You know, why did 
John the Baptist go here? Why, why did the prophets go to these places? Like what was significant about the locations and what they represented? So this is fun. If we were to jump into Luke and Acts, like what would we find? Yeah, well, Luke and I, you know, if we talk when you talk about theological geography, Luke is the master of theological geography. And in fact, Luke and Acts, we scholars refer to it not just as Luke and Acts. Uh, we know that the same author wrote both, but also Luke-Acts, in other words, a single two-volume work. Because the the book that begins or the story that begins in Luke chapter 1 doesn't really reach its narrative climax till Acts 28, till the end of Acts. And so we need to see these two together. And from a geographical point, it's just fascinating what Luke does with geography and theology together. So let me just run through some of those points real quick, and then we can maybe zero in on on a few. Um, But just like in Mark's gospel, Jesus' early ministry in Matthew, Mark, and Luke all takes place in Galilee in the north. Um, But then in Luke chapter 9, 51, Um, just after the transfiguration in Luke, it says Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. That's a kind of a literal rendering. He focused from that point on, he, he focuses on Jerusalem and, and he's, he's traveling all over the place. It's really funny because it keeps saying he's headed to Jerusalem, but sometimes he's not, he's going North, South, East, and West, but (laughs) the focus now is on Jerusalem. He's taking his time, time, but his focus is on Jerusalem. And a number of times Luke says, because he was on his way to Jerusalem or on the way to Jerusalem. And so Jesus is going all over the place. He's all over Galilee. He's, he's in the north and so, so forth. But he's always now, from the time of Peter's confession and the transfiguration, he's got his focus on Jerusalem. So just like in Mark's gospel, you've got all the early miracles and demonstrates of power, demonstrations of power. But now Jesus is headed to Jerusalem where he's going to accomplish salvation. And in the transfiguration, it's really fascinating. In Luke's version of the transfiguration, only Luke tells us what Moses and Elijah were talking about. Mm -hmm. And what they were talking about is the exodus or departure that Jesus was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. So then a few verses later, it says Jesus sets his face or, or, or resolves to go to Jerusalem, Luke 9, 51. Now, in in Mark's gospel, when that happens, when Jesus starts towards Jerusalem, it's in Mark chapter 10. He gets there in one chapter. We don't learn until Mark Mark chapter 10 that he's going to Jerusalem, and he gets there in one chapter. 11.1, he enters Jerusalem. In Luke's gospel, 9.51, he's going. He doesn't get there until chapter 19. So he goes 10 chapters, and scholars call this the travel narrative or the journey to Jerusalem. Because Luke introduces this huge section, a major section in the middle of his gospel that Mark basically doesn't have. And most of that time, Jesus is teaching the disciples. He's moving around. He does some miracles, but he mostly teaches the disciples. Some of the most famous parables we all know come in that Luke 9 through 19. I mean, the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, the, the rich man and Lazarus. Name it. Almost any of the most famous miracles occur during that time. As Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, he's defining his ministry. So this journey to Jerusalem is symbolic of the road to the cross. And so then Jesus, of course, gets to Jerusalem, accomplishes salvation. He's arrested. He's tried. He's crucified. He rises from the dead. And so you've got this narrative that is heading towards Jerusalem. And and Jerusalem is an ambivalent place in Luke's gospel. Jerusalem is the city of God. It's the place where God's very presence dwells. But it also represents Israel's rejection of the gospel. So Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, you know, and he, you know, he says how I wanted, like a mother hen, I wanted to gather you, but you would not do it. 
because you haven't represent you haven't recognized the time of your visitation. So the journey to Jerusalem symbolizes both the road to the cross and Jerusalem is positive in the place as the place of salvation, but negative as the place of rejection. So then we get to Acts, right? Jesus rises from the dead. He's about to ascend to heaven. And what does he say? He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So you've got these concentric circles moving outwards through the book of Acts. So what's the gospel is about the journey to Jerusalem to accomplish salvation. The book of Acts is the journey from Jerusalem to announce that salvation. So you could say the the gospel of Luke is uh, salvation accomplished. The book of Acts is salvation announced to the world. And And it's all geography, but it's theological geography or typological geography, we could call it. Sorry, I got a little carried away there. <laughs> blowing my mind. That's what's going on here. <laughs> These are always the fun things. You know, this is what, what I always tell people when when you dive into scripture, it comes alive. You know, it, it you begin to see again that God that God's vision for all this is so much bigger than we ever thought. Mm. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and you we we begin to learn. And I love what you're saying here of just like Going to Jerusalem and then Acts really being, like you just said, leaving Jerusalem. That's what we learned together when we were in Turkey. It's like, how does this storyline, this gospel, how does it leave? And what is it? And then what does it do? So people need to go to Turkey. (laughs) That's right. With GTI is what they need. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, with GTI. You should. Actually, I'm I'm heading to Greece and Turkey in a couple of weeks, so I'm excited about that. That idea of sort of to Jerusalem and from Jerusalem structures the whole of of, of Luke and Acts. Um, And then you've you've got all kinds of other, you know, small geographical things in the same way that Jesus is portrayed as a new Moses in in Luke and Acts as well. Um, You know, the temptation account, um, for example, the 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 transfiguration we referred to. He's also portrayed as a new Israel, the fulfillment of Israel, um, um, because you know Israel was tested in the wilderness, and Jesus is tested in the wilderness. So wilderness imagery there again, the uh, the, the geography of the wilderness related to both Moses, a Moses-like figure, but also Israel itself. Where Israel fails, Jesus succeeds. Israel is meant to be a light to the nations. Um, Jesus is that light to the nations. Um, twice in in Luke and Acts, um, Luke quotes from Isaiah forty nine six, which is a, a passage with reference to the servant, the uh, the servant in Isaiah, who's going to be a light of revelation for the Gentiles. And in Acts t- chapter or in Luke chapter two, Simeon prophesies that Jesus is going to be a light to the Gentiles. And then in, in the book of Acts. Paul refers to himself as a light to the Gentiles. So you've got, you've got Jesus fulfilling the role of the servant in his suffering and death. You've got Paul fulfilling the role of the servant in his announcement of salvation to the Gentiles. And so you've got this imagery where the servant is not only Jesus, the servant of Isaiah, his suffering servant, but then the servant becomes the church as the body of Christ in the book of Acts. And Paul is proclaiming the message as the restored remnant of Israel. He's proclaiming light to the Gentiles. So it's a fascinating sort of that, that typology there of the servant. You've got all kinds of imagery related to the church as the body of Christ as his very presence in the world. You know, something that's uh, 
that I always find interesting, maybe you can dive in a little bit more for us with this, with this, when we're talking about the book of Acts um, and Luke is it seems like there's this, you know, this idea of the gospel going out, you know, it's starting at like Jerusalem, you know, Judea, you know, Samaria to the ends of the earth. Could you kind of elaborate a little bit more maybe on how that fits into what we've been talking about um, yeah. in that realm there of, of this intermediate that kind of happens as it kind of sends itself out? Yeah, we talk about sort of concentric circles moving outwards. And Jerusalem, of course, is the city where salvation is accomplished, the center of the world, the universe. Judea is the region around uh, Jerusalem, the Jewish-dominated region. And Samaria is an interesting one, and particularly interesting in Luke and Acts, because Luke has a special interest in the Samaritans. I mean, we've, we've got in John the story of the Samaritan woman, but most of the other main Samaritan stories are in Luke and Acts. Um, in Luke, you've got the story of the 10 lepers who are healed, and the one comes back to thank Jesus. He is a Samaritan, which is the, the whole point. It, that story isn't just about gratitude. It's about the salvation going to the Samaritans. Uh, Jesus comes to a Samaritan village, and he's rejected there. And James and John want to call down fire from heaven. Um, that's in Luke's gospel against the Samaritans. So indications Samaritans hate the Jews, the Jews hate the Samaritans. Then you've got the parable of the Good Samaritan. All of those are unique to Luke's gospel. So Luke already in his gospel has this special interest in the Samaritans. Some have even said they thought Luke might be a, have been a Samaritan because he was so interested in them. Yeah. I think a better explanation is because he, he knows where he's going in his second volume, and that is Samaria is going to play this crucial intermediary place between Jews and Gentiles. As the gospel advances outwards, it goes to the Jews, first of all, in Jerusalem and Judea, but then it goes to the broader Israelites uh, the, who are excluded, who are outsiders, as a transition to the Gentiles. And, and so you've got, you've got um, Philip in um, Samaria in Acts chapter 8. I love you that then, one. Yeah, it's, a, it's a great account there with Simon, you know, with Simon the sorcerer there. And then he takes the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch, who is also kind of a transitional figure. Because here's someone, here's a God-fear who's coming to Jerusalem to worship God. Um, and so he's already a believer in many ways, a believer in God, but he doesn't understand, you know, he's on the chariot, of course, reading from Isaiah 53, and he doesn't understand. What does he need? He needs Philip to complete that, his knowledge, his understanding. So here's the outsider who's halfway there already, the, the, you know, what we call in Acts, the Gentile God-fear, who already believes in the one true God of Israel, but hasn't yet heard the full story. And then, then the very next chapter, you come to the, the account of, the, of Cornelius in chapter 10 of Acts. And now you've got a full-blown Gentile receiving mm -hmm. the gospel. So you get this in a whole host of ways. Luke is demonstrating how the gospel breaks down barriers. And that's the key is each of these is a, is a barrier. And that barrier between Jews and Gentiles was inviolable. I mean, you, you know, you know, in the temple, of course, you've got that wall going around the temple separating the court of the Gentiles. And, and we've discovered archaeologically plaques that say, if you cross this wall, you are responsible for your own death. Gentiles could not enter the temple. And so these, the whole book of Acts is about these barriers are crashing down as the gospel goes from Jerusalem, the temple to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Um, the the temple is significant in that regard for for because it's the center of Jerusalem, right? And so the temple is the place. It really the gospel goes forth from the temple, really, 
outward from there. And um, there's a whole temple theology going on with reference with reference to to Luke and Acts as well. Um, when when Jesus is tempted, his three temptations in Matthew's gospel, the third temptation, the second and third temptation are in a different order than Luke's gospel. In Matthew's gospel. That the third temptation is on a mount, the mountaintop where Satan shows him all the nations of the world. Well, what are important for Matthew is these mountaintop revelations because Jesus is the new Moses. In Luke, the final temptation is in the temple. He switches the second and third temptations around. Why? Because the temple is, is so critically important. The gospel begins where? Geographically. It begins in the temple in Jerusalem with Zechariah and the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. Where does the gospel end? Go to, to Luke 24. It ends with the disciples in the temple proclaiming the gospel and worshiping together there. And so you've, you've got this, this, again, this temple imagery related to Jerusalem, the place of God. Then, of course, the gospel goes forth. Paul comes back to the temple where he's arrested ultimately and then sent to Rome. And you've got that movement from the temple to Rome, just that same movement that we've been seeing throughout the, the book of Acts. Well, friends, I hope what you're seeing here is that there is so much to unpack inside of the biblical text. And I, I find it every time that I, I study and jump into it, is that I just go, wow, like it's like God's just kind of given a fresh little piece to all of this. And and Mark, as you're doing right now, you're, you're opening it up for us a little bit too to go, hey guys, as you read this, mm. some of the words, some of the places that you maybe just breezed over, they have such significance to help you understand exactly what God's doing and what he's, what he's saying. So any, any resources that you would suggest that people could jump into if they want to study this a little bit more or understand it a bit better? Right. Um, well, the, the, certainly the good commentaries all will cover issues of narrative theology. And there's also now, Zondervan has a whole set of, of volumes on the theology of the individual gospels. For example, there's a theology of Mark, it's gospel by, by David Garland. There's a theology of Luke and Acts by Daryl Bach. Those are great sources because they're focusing on not just the historical story, which is a true story, of course, historical, but they're also focusing on the theology that comes out. Um, and then Lexham. Lexham is the publisher behind Lagos Bible Software and, uh, or vice versa. I, I, it's the publishing wing of, of Lagos or FaithWorks, FaithLife, excuse me. FaithLife is, is now the organization. Um, and they have, uh, Barry Beitzel has edited two volumes of, of called geographical commentaries. And so basically they're commentaries on the geography of, of the New Testament. The first one was a historical or a geographical commentary on the Gospels. And then there's a geographical commentary on Acts through Revelation. Um, I contributed to that second volume. In fact, I, I, a lot of what we've been talking about is in the article. The first article in that volume is on the, the typological geography of Luke and Acts, and it covers a lot of the material we've been talking about here. So that's called the Lexham Geographical Commentary on the New Testament. And we'll have links to that in the show notes that you can link right to it. Check it out on Amazon and and pick that up. And you know, I, I would just, I'd highly suggest looking into some of these, like one, one of the ones of yours actually that I give to everybody who goes on an Israel trip and says, I need a little something, um, is just your little essential Bible companion, um, hmm. because it's so simple, so, so easy. It, it's got, a, it's got pictures. I mean, that's yeah. what makes it amazing. <laughs> and charts. And, uh, and yeah, 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 and yeah. This, so if you're, 
in charge. So if you're out there looking for something real simple, just to dive into like a little bit of getting into um, biblical um, geography, things like that, th this at least will give you a bite-sized thing to start looking into. Um, I'd highly suggest that as well. And study, you know, and, and go, go on a trip if you can, because the moment you walk it, you, you all of a sudden go, whoa, it's what they said. Like, these are real places. These were real people. The mountain really was right there. And man, it's not as tall as I thought it was. And that <laughs> sea that is really a lake is quite small. And yeah. yeah, these all of these things kind of begin to fit together when you when you get a chance to understand it in the context of where it was. So good times right there. Well, Mark, one of the things I wanted to finish with as we kind of concluded was, and I asked this question to to a lot of people when I interview them, uh, some fun questions too, is is uh you know, with, with your time traveling over in, you know, the biblical lands, is there something that stands out? Is there an experience, something fun, something that, that stands out, uh, maybe a location that, mm, uh, mm. as you, as, since we haven't traveled much lately, like what are those places <laughs> yeah. you think about? Yeah. Oh, there's so many in Israel, but I think for me, one of the most moving places is Capernaum. Um, the village of Capernaum, because it's a beautiful archaeological site. They've excavated the village there. Um, and then there is a, a synagogue. It's a fourth century synagogue. But as you well know, it, it was built over On the top. first century yeah. synagogue. And you can you can see the black basalt from the first century synagogue as sort of the foundation underneath this, this synagogue. And then um, they've got, they've discovered a house that was renovated into a church early on, I think in the third century maybe the fourth century, and they, they know it was a private home and they've excavated and they can map it out. And it was a home, a multi-room um, multi home, which would fit perfectly with Peter's home because we know Peter lived with Andrew and his wife. Peter and his wife lived with Andrew and their mother-in-law was there. So this was a compound basically. And they believe, most scholars, many scholars believe this is Peter's home. Um, and, and so there's a church now built over. You can look down in the archaeological site through the glass floor of the church. It's a beautiful, beautiful spot. But when you're in the synagogue, you can, you can be in the synagogue and then you can walk right over um, to the house. And in Mark chapter one, you've got a scene where Jesus is in the synagogue. He's teaching with authority. The people are amazed. Um, and then he walks over to Peter's home where he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And so, you know, usually we say, you know, with the Sermon on the Mount, you know, the Mount of Beatitudes, we go, it may not have been this place, but it was something like this in, the, in this general region. So we're generally in the general region of Jesus. We don't know for sure, but we're in the general region. But this is a place where you can literally walk in the footsteps of Jesus because you are at the synagogue. He was there. You're walking over to the house where he was. So there's something about chills running down your spine when you're actually in, in the very presence, the, the, the very place where he walked um, and and demonstrated such authority and power in those contexts, really revealed who he was to his disciples in those contexts. So that's that's one place that for me is really powerful every time I visit. Yeah, Capernaum is not very big. It's it's a very small kind of area. And what I what I love to do with people, just going off what you just said, is you know, in our study guide, we've got a list in the back that kind of says like places where where Jesus taught or miracles that he did. And there's some places we don't know that, you know, where he did them at, but there are a lot of times where it was Capernaum or in the mm -hmm. vicinity of yeah. Capernaum. So it's amazing to send people kind of over towards the water or to sit down and go, mm -hmm. just look through your Bible 
and read <laughs> in the gospels, you can just read so many things that happened in this small area, somewhere yeah. right in here, you know, and yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty cool, you know, cause you yeah, don't always yeah. get to say that like when you're That's on a right. trip, but like you just said there, you can, you know, it mm. happens somewhere right in here. Right. Right. So that's great. One other story I, I remember as we kind of conclude is is I was kind of thinking for me of like what's a memorable thing, and I was trying to remember a memorable thing with you, and we we shared the that uh, Miletus moment. But one mm. other memorable moment uh, for me on a trip with you was not even in a real biblical spot. We were in Santa Torini, a couple of guys, mm. and we rode the donkeys up the uh, <laughs> that yeah. back switchback. Yeah. One of the most dangerous things I have ever done in my life. <laughs> As we as we so made our fun. way to the top of Santa Torini, I have video, I have video on of you on those on that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> those are good. You know, those are yeah. those are some of those moments. People go, you know, what's the yeah. most impactful thing? I'm a lot of biblical impactful moments, but then there's just <laughs> moments that are just awesome. Yeah, those, and those donkeys. Will I ever amazing. ride a donkey up that again? No, <laughs> no. And every step, they 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 they're sort of they look so shaky. They look like they're going to stumble, and you're going to be, you know. <laughs> bashed to death on these cliff faces, but they, they always hold steady. Yeah. Yeah. Remarkable. <laughs> yep. That was a good time. Well, thanks very much for joining us. I, again, I appreciate any time I get with you. And so those who are listening, I, I hope you've enjoyed your time with Dr. Mark Strauss and we look forward to you joining us again on the next GTI podcast. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. For more information on upcoming GTI study tours, please find us on the web at www.gtitours.org.